I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And we are here to discuss Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, we're here to discuss chapters 21 through 24. They're kind of a big deal, these chapters. A lot happens. A tree gets split, and Karen's going to explain a bunch of other stuff that happens in this chapter. Tree gets split by lightning, which is like kind of a crucial image based on the cover of Karen's edition of this book. And Karen, I want to ask you, since that happens right in the middle of this section, I guess it's the end of 23. And in a second, we're going to do a recap. But I want to talk about that image and was wondering why you chose that particular image to be on the cover of this edition. And then we'll get into the regular discussion. So, no, actually, I was excited to talk about this because the Close Reads uh, Facebook group had a big part to play in this. So mm. it's you guys. So <laughs> the way the whole process with the covers works, it, well, I'll probably say more than people want to hear, but um, <laughs> we picked out a color scheme first. That was the first thing for all the covers, although we just made a final decision about the last one that, that you guys helped with that too. But <laughs> so two at a time as I'm doing the books, um the the artist at my publisher comes with a few different designs for each title uh, with a few or sometimes we discuss the idea and with Jane Eyre I'm sure there were some other images but we decided on a tree but the first tree as someone in the group said looked very bronchial <laughs> um, <laughs> it just looked like a set of lungs and so we we tweaked it a little bit. And so what we tried to capture here was, you know, that it is sort of hit by lightning. It's not split in two, but right, there is right, a dent yeah, yeah. there. I mean, of all of the singular images that could be in from this book, I think that's really the, there were some other titles in the series that had several different options, but I think for Jane Eyre, the tree really was, it, it was either the tree or the face of a woman, uh, but mm. that just seemed too cliche. Mm. Yeah. You could do that for any all number of, of books. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, we're going to talk chapters 21 through 24, the end of 23. 23 is the big, the big romantic, dramatic, the big dramatic scene. And it ends with her finding out about the tree in the orchard being struck by lightning. So Karen, can you just, it's, it's your turn to do the summary. Okay. Uh, so can you give us a little summary of, of what happened in these chapters and then we'll dive in? Yeah, yeah. It'll, and it'll be very brief. So basically in chapter 21, which is, again, to me is a, a really pivotal point in the novel, um, Jane ends up returning to her childhood home because Mrs. Reed is dying. And there she encounters her cousins, Georgiana and Eliza, who've grown up uh, and we see what they are like. But the most important thing that happens here is that Jane learns that she has an uncle who has tried to reach her. Uh, and Mrs. Reed kept that from her. And of course, part of the Jane's whole problem throughout this whole novel has been that she's had no real family that loved her or wanted her. And so this is kind of a 
devastating discovery to find that this thing so important to her has been kept from her. But even more important in this chapter is that Jane does what she said she would never do as a little girl, and she forgives her aunts for her cruelty. And then when she returns to Rochester, um, Rochester tells her after staying uh, for about a month with uh, the Reeds, she returns to Thornfield Hall and Rochester tells her the heartbreaking news that he's going to marry Blanche Ingram. And then suddenly he proposes to Jane <laughs> um, and kisses her. And uh, and then in the as as she's kind of this whirlwind what becomes a whirlwind romance um she's planning for this wedding which was really unexpected and it's happening fast and suddenly she wakes up in the middle of the night and there is a strange horrible figure that she thinks must be mrs pool who has torn who comes to tear her wedding veil in half which is also the same night that the I believe that the tree is struck by lightning and it's all very, very gothic and very scary and very traumatic. And Rochester tells Jane that he will explain everything to her a year and a day after their wedding. And I think, is that all? I think that's all. Sounds like, sounds like about covers it. Heidi, do you want to add anything that, I want to that add you nothing. particularly love? Okay. So this is a bad host question. I can't wait. But where should we start? <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, I was um, upstairs at the store and I've got someone who takes over for me while I'm down here doing this. And she's been listening and hi, Nancy. And uh, she likes this book and she was asking where we were stopping. And I said, I, I was reading at the time and I couldn't remember exactly where it stopped. But then I got to thinking, well, I don't even know where to start with this section because <laughs> um, there's... You know, there's so many interesting passages. There's at the beginning of, I think, 23, it might be my favorite bit of Brontean prose that we've read in the book so far. I'm not going to say the whole book because I haven't reviewed the end of it start yet. there. Go ahead, Karen. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Okay. Well, at the end of 22, I put this note in my margins that just says, is he playing with her? Because that's, I feel like that's a big question about, about him that determine if you think he's just messing around with her and he's playing with her heart then you're going to feel one way about him and if you think he doesn't know his own mind and heart then you're going to think a different way about him so i want to know how you each feel about that in a little bit but if 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 you think we should start there the beginning of 23 those first that first paragraph and then at various times throughout 23 i think the prose is just darn near perfect so i'll read this first paragraph if if, if you want me to, and we can go from there. A splendid midsummer shone over England. Skies so pure, sun so radiant, as were then seen in long succession. Seldom favor even singly our wave-girt land. It was as if a band of Italian days had come from the south like a flock of glorious passenger birds and lighted to rest them on the cliffs of Albion. The hay was all got in. The fields round Thornfield were green and shorn. The roads white and baked. The trees were in their dark prime, hedge and wood, full-leaved and deeply tinted, contrasted well with the sunny hue of the cleared meadows between. Uh, she goes on, but like, there's no wasted words, in, which is not something that it can always be said about writers from this era. <laughs> the precision, I think, of her writing at times had to have been, I mean, Shakespeare was pretty precise, but had to have been pretty revolutionary for the novel at the time. Um, but I'm not, I mean, you're the expert on the novel. So I'd love to hear, Karen, 
about what you think of her. Is this just me kind of like going off the deep end here, being a little hyperbolic in the moment? (laughs) No, I mean, I think, again, this goes back to something we said on one of the first programs is that Bronte's voice and her writing is so clear and natural. I mean, obviously it's poetic and beautiful, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I really like this passage because she uses so many like um, just earthy, simple words, but has such Mm -hmm. a rich description. Like side note, I don't know how so many students or why so many students are taught to use like, you know, turgid prose and huge words because there's no good writing that does that except for maybe Thomas Hardy's, but he's, you know, very good at it. Um, Yeah. So one in the world (laughs) ever. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And so this really, I I love that you picked this passage out because it it is descriptive. It, uh, It does set the scene. It's not that it's, you know, advancing the it is the kind of thing that some people might say, oh, it's flowery. It's not doing anything there, but it's doing so much work. Um, but yet using mm-hmm. this just very clear, t- speaking really in everyday language, this is a kind of, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. if we don't live in this kind of countryside, we might not use these words because we're not used to it. But this is a very natural right, right. sounding description of what this character would have seen as she was reflecting that second sentence was what, like, the, it was when it kind of hit me in the face how good it was, where she writes, and I did a bad job reading it. It was as if a band of Italian days had come from the south, like a flock of glorious passenger birds and lighted to rest them on the cliffs of Albion. I love that sentence so much. Like, you could, I mean, honestly, Hemingway could have written that sentence, right? He might not have used the word them, but the way that, quite the exact phrasing, but it's so, there's nothing mm-hmm. wasted there. And as you said, it's doing work. And what do you mean by that? And Heidi, you jump in at any time if you have something you love about one of these passages. The whole chapter, I feel like, has paragraphs like this that are interspersed throughout all the drama. And I think a lot of times we think about books like this as, you know, these big gothic romantic story stories with melodrama and these big scenes, like almost like action movies have set pieces. It's the literary gothic version of that. But then you get this precise writing and it's you said some people would say, well, this isn't advancing the plot, but it is doing work. Yeah. So what kind of work is well, this doing? Well, I mean, if, if you reduce this paragraph to, it was the middle of summer, and then you went on, you know, that doesn't do the work that literary art is supposed to do, mm-hmm. which is to recreate an experience. So if you actually were a human being out there in this scene and paying half attention, you know, or paying as much attention as we should be paying most of our days, no matter where we are or what we're doing. These are, this is how you would, you would put it. I mean, when there's a certain, you know, again, we may not relate to the time of year when the hay is in, but if, you know, there are other parallels that we would have in our own lives. I mean, we all know what it's like when the lawn is being mowed and it's that, that, that smell, right? That's just part of our experience. So to, yeah, to yeah. use words to recreate that experience is what literature is supposed to do. And that's what it does so well. I think the other part of this scene is this chap- the first half of this chapter is, is all about sense. Because mm-hmm. sense in multiple ways, actually, I suppose. But because um, h- how does she realize where he is? It's the mm-hmm. cigar, right? She says, sweet briar and southern wood, jasmine, pink and rose have long been yielding their evening sacrifice of incense. This new scent is neither of shrub nor flower. It is, I know it well, it is Mr. Rochester's cigar. And so this, Bronte gets us prepared 
to have all this revelation begin through her smelling something. And that take, that's what takes us into the whole scene, the whole, this whole huge dramatic scene. And I think this first paragraph is preparing the reader for that to be meaningful. It's, it's, I mean, all great writing like that is engaging with the senses, but I think that this, she could have put it at the end of the previous chapter or something, but I think that it, it, um, it opens up our imaginations and our senses to, to be prepared to, to get the most out of that cigar smell as well as, as she did. How do you, were you going to say something? I want to say yes, because you said that before and I said no. So this time I'll say yes. <laughs> well, you don't have to say yes. You just kind of looked up like you might be wanting to say um, something. And I want to make sure you have thanks, a platform David. too. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I love all of this. It also tells us why they're outside. And that's, it's a little mm. thing. And to, to Karen's yeah. point, you could just say, it was a beautiful summer evening. So I went outside, but this gives us an atmosphere and a romantic atmosphere. And one thing that Gothic novels have a lot of is the pathetic fallacy. Uh, so meaning that they use the weather outside to reflect, it means other things too, but one aspect of the pathetic fallacy is to use the weather outside to reflect what's going on inside. So, you know, we've seen that in, um, you know, it's raining when she's sad and now we see it's blooming in summer. And so we're expecting something blooming and warm. Yeah. Get ready. And it does. Is what it's so, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Rochester a little bit because I, there was the question I asked, how do you feel about him? Do you think he is playing with her heart or doesn't know his own heart? Like at the end of 22, for example, or maybe I'm completely reading that because it seems like he's kind of, uh, he's kind of leading her on or purposefully being mysterious to keep her at arm's length or is it just, or he just isn't sure what he thinks of her. So I'm curious how you feel about what up to this point where he finally, as you said, very dramatically proposes and just gives her that big kiss up to this point. How is he, how do you read him? Karen, how do you, I mean, he kind of reminds me of a boy or two in eighth grade who like (laughs) there was one, you know, what a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, You know, who spent like an hour one night talking to me on the phone and I thought he must really like me. And then like he, I don't even know, like ask someone else to the dance or whatever. And like, I just, I think that that was just, I think boys and men like Rochester can be confused and not know their own hearts and try be trying to figure it out. And of course his situation is even more complicated. He's not just, you know, himself that he has to deal with, but do, I think that he is, he feels trapped and wants love and marriage, but doesn't know how best to pursue it. And, you know, there is the obstacle that he has. And then there's something that whatever society would say and society would say, oh, Mary Blanche Ingram. And then Mm -hmm. there's what his heart would say, which is, oh, Mary Jane. And so Mm -hmm. I think he's just a hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of 22, it says, I began to cherish hopes I had no right to conceive that the match was broken off. That rumor had been mistaken that one or both parties had changed their minds. I used to look at my master's face to see if it were sad or fierce, but I couldn't remember the times when it had been so uniformly clear of clouds or evil feelings. If in the moments I and my people spent with him, I lacked spirits and sank into inevitable dejection, he became even gay. Never had he called me more frequently to his presence, never been kinder to me when there, and alas, never had I loved him so well. So obviously it's setting up this inner turmoil on her, but then we already know that he is this character who is willing to play games. Like we got that earlier with the, um, 
when he's the gypsy person. <laughs> and then he does, and then we get in this chapter, we get revealed that he was playing a game with Blanche to determine how much she actually liked him as opposed to his bank account. So Heidi, yes, he's just a dishonorable guy. <laughs> no, he's not a dishonorable guy, but he's not yet the man that he could be. So I have always interpreted this as testing Jane because Jane is so reserved and he can't read her. So I actually, as long as we're making confessions about eighth grade relationships, I actually had a boy do this to me once, but I was older. I was in late high school and he really liked me, but he told me he liked this other girl to like test me. And I took him at face value and thought he didn't like me. And (laughs) I believed him. He was like, I like this other girl. And then I just kind of like dropped it because I liked him a lot. And I, I, so, and later he told the me, rest like a was couple history. Years, told me a couple of years later that that's what he had done. And I just was not subtle enough to pick up on that particular game. Um, what did you tell him years later when this happened? I said, oh, I told liked you that. too. I said, I liked you too. I, you should have made a move. And he's like, I just couldn't read you. And I was really reserved, probably. And then you but... punched him in the face, or? <laughs> I think we probably had a good laugh okay. um, sure. at that point. <laughs> yeah, I did feel like, oh, man, I didn't know. Then I sang a Backstreet Boys song to him. Quit playing games with my... I didn't do that. But I've... he is. It's just took a turn. I would have, maybe. No, I wouldn't. Okay. But anyway, I um, <laughs> where were we? I know. I I do think he's playing games, but I don't think he's trifling. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that I think that he is, instead of being straightforward and honest, he is trying to figure out how she feels by kind of creating this this. Uh, so he's playing games, but maybe not trying to manip- not trying to manipulate. Yeah, her? I don't think, and I I think he knows at this point that he loves her. Um, and I think he wants to see what she feels, but she's so restrained. And so he wants to get her to show some emotion, which he finally succeeds in doing in chapter 23. Um, and I think it's really lovely. One of the things that I love about this book is how close it keeps everything to Jane. Mm -hmm. Because what we learned while she's away from him is that she is into him, right? Like even more so. And she learns that about herself too. And what they could, she could have done is she could have given us scenes of Rochester also having a absence makes a heart grow fonder experience as well. But because the book keeps everything so close to Jane's point of view and perspective, it increases the mystery for the reader of Rochester. I mean, that's kind of an obvious thing to say, but I think mm-hmm. not every writer approaches it that way. A lot of writers are jumping around on point of view and Bronte uses that close point of view really effectively. Karen, were you, what were you going to say? No, I, I, I was um, just agreeing with you. And just to kind of uh, repeat that note of like, you know, uh, of not really Rochester not knowing himself. And, and Jane, Jane is similar as much as she is, you know, she's more mature than Rochester and doesn't play games. But even in, in chapter 23, when she learns that he's going to marry Blanche, I love how she says on page 421 that she's grieving. To, I grieve to leave Thornfield. I love Thornfield. I love it because I have lived in it, lived in it a full and delightful life. I mean, that all that's true. Thornfield, she does love Thornfield, but it's not just Thornfield she loves, yeah. you know. So right. it's just, um, that's a very... Uh, realistic human kind of response, I think, um, trying to yeah, figure the, out, you know, the source of our emotions. And the buildup to them finally 
revealing to each other how they feel is really good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like a mystery almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's in that same passage. She's talking. She's that's when she actually realizes it. She says, you know, she says, I have. I've known you, Mr. Rochester. It strikes me with terror and anguish to feel I absolutely must be torn from you forever. It's like as though, I mean, she's speaking and she's, as she's speaking, she's realizing her emotions and she's thinking, well, I don't want to leave Thornfield. And then she's like, well, I don't want to leave you. She's discovering it. She's discovering herself and her feelings as she uses her language to express herself, which we've seen from the beginning. This is, you know, words are her power. Um, yeah. And it's through words that she learns who she is and exerts the little the, the little bit of agency that she has. Well, she, after she says from you, sir, it says, I said this almost involuntarily. Mm-hmm. And with his little sanction of free will, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my tears gushed out. So I, I love that, that she's discovering things in the moment as well. That she doesn't, that she's like discovering the words for it. Mm-hmm. But is he is he doing the same thing? Because it seems like there's a couple times where she says, and I said it without really meaning to. Um, she's kind of like, so would you say she's lost con- control of that agency that she so clings to? Well, I think she's in the. I mean, she's she's learning what's really what she really feels, and I think as she's that, I think she's making decisions pretty quickly as she discovers it, as she sort of peels back the layers. Because right after that is where she says the bottom of that page, I see the necessity of departure and it is like looking on the necessity of death. So she realizes how she feels and then she says, oh, I have to leave. Um, and so I think she really is exerting her agency here. Mm-hmm. Well, she's including her heart in her agency, right? And I, I think that that's one of the things that I love so, so much about the character of Jane is we do have this dutiful, restrained, reserved young woman and then, but on the other hand, as we learned about her from her childhood, like you are passionate, Jane, right? Like she, she has a very deep heart and very acute emotional responses. And when she is pushed, she will show her feelings. We see that throughout the novel. She's not so, so restrained that she has no desire or ability or compulsion to show emotion. She's a very passionate person. And that comes through in this scene. And and it does feel like she she doesn't want to show that. She's, you know, she gets sometimes embarrassed when she shows her emotions. And we see that several times in the novel, but she's she doesn't deny them. She allows her heart to be a part of her agency. And, and that's as it should be, you know, emotion doesn't and ought not to be divorced from the human will. They ought to be united. And that's part of Jane's journey. So, okay. On 421, Mm -hmm. um, he says, Jane, do you hear that nightingale singing in the wood? Listen. And then it says in listening, I sobbed convulsively for I could repress what I endured no longer. I was obliged to yield, and I was shaken from head to foot with acute distress. When I did speak, it was only to express an impetuous wish that I had never been born or never come to Thornfield. Poor girl. <laughs> um, and then he says, Be- because you're sorry to leave it. And then the narrator says, the vehemence of emotion stirred by grief and love within me were- was claiming mastery and struggling for full sway and asserting a right to predominate, to overcome, to live, rise, and reign at last. Yes, and to speak. 
And then she says, I grieve to leave Thornfield. I love Thornfield. I love it. And I have not, you know, she says that Karen read, mentioned this passage earlier. So Heidi, how do you read this passage here? Because it seems like she's being, she's expressing it as if she was overcome. Yes. It's, yeah, she is overcome here. And that's, yeah. So is the desire. It's so close to the, it's so close to the, like, I, I don't want to call it the thesis statement of the book, but it's so close to its most famous line when she asserts her own will on the next page, right? Which, which is a uniting right. of her desire and her love and, that's and interesting. also her so, independence. So here she says what, she, what I just read. Then on the next page, she says, do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain, and little, I am soulless and heartless? Fame, a very famous line, of course. Mm -hmm. she, talk, she says, I'm not talking through the medium of custom conventionalities nor even of flesh. And then on the next page on 423, it's the line, I'm no bird and no net ensnares me. I'm a free I'm a human free being human with an independent with will, independent which I will. now exhort, exert to leave you. So is she going through a process emotionally here where she gets from one of these things to the next where at first thing she's being overcome and then she's then she says my emotions matter man basically and then except mm -hmm. Charlotte Bronte said it better and then <laughs> and then she exerts her free will so is this a process here I do that think she's it's going a process through? I mean a process is such a disembodied word or you know but I, I know, do think I, it I, is I, yeah I know there's, it's hard to come up with. She is, but she, it's the, it's a good word. It's a, it is an internal, it's an interior coming, to, uh, coming to be, right? This is a, a, a moment of um, an assertion of the self and it's made from a place of great upheaval and distress within her in the presence of this man that she loves and thinks she cannot have. And Jane, what I love about Jane is she doesn't, she doesn't break down under that. She stands up, like she rises up and asserts her will, asserts herself with a capital S. And um, she does that many times we've already seen and many times in the future of the novel. I love DTR scenes a lot because then we get like a look into both of them and how they change. They begin to change each other here in this, in this particular scene. And it carries, mm -hmm. carries on from here. Because until until now they have been independently falling in love with each other, and now they begin. Once they come together, then then a new thing begins to be born from it. And and I do think exactly what you said. Yes, she is going through a profound metamorphosis in this moment, ending with that very beautiful "I'm free human being with an independent will." A remarkable thing for this young woman to say in her social class and in her time. Karen, you've been listening. Yeah, I think um, there, there's so much uh, here. It, it's, it's well, Heidi said, you both said a lot of it, um, but it's the power of dialogue, right? I mean, this is, hmm. and, and again, it's part of what literary art can and should do because it traffics in words. And so this, this important scene develops through a conversation, a dialogue between two characters. And these work as they have this dialogue, they are understanding themselves. They're understanding each other better and it's developing. And, and I can just imagine Charlotte Bronte in, in writing this, she's probably discovering what's these characters are going to do too. Yeah. You know, you don't, you know, a, a bad writers have an idea already and sat down to just kind of 
transcribe you know, it. Yeah, transcribe this set idea. But you know, but but uh, Flannery O'Connor talks about this a lot in Mystery and Manners. Her process of writing is just she, she, Bronte allows the characters to come alive and follows them where they go as they as they you know have this dialogue. And this is this again is something that's so realistic. I think because this is how how our lives go too in these intense moments when we have conversations with people. I mean, a stray word or a wrong tone or whatever could just steer the whole thing in a different direction. Um, yeah, it, as with Heidi's life. Uh, yes yes the little test (laughs) yeah okay so i have a question i have a question about what's happening to jane here this might be pedantic or too fine on a too too fine a way of putting this is jane discovering herself here or is she gaining the courage to reveal herself here does does the Mm -hmm. distinction make sense and you can just tell me it's a dumb dumb question it's not a dumb question because I was thinking about how first she is being overcome in a way that has not happened much to her since she was a child um, and which she has worked to avoid. But then she begins to, you know, assert herself in a situation where that would normally not happen, even with someone who she has a, you know, even with someone who she has a decent relationship with. So I guess I was just curious, how much does she know about herself here or or is it a so I, again the I'll just say the question again is Jane discovering herself here or is she gaining the courage to reveal herself finally Karen you just unmuted yourself so as with Jeopardy where you buzz in <laughs> we'll <laughs> give you the floor um yeah so I want to I want to tie this to the previous chapter or mm. chapter 21 mm-hmm. I mean we talked about how the scene when Jane goes back to um the reads Part of Mm -hmm. what that does is it allows both Jane and Rochester to experience that absence from, you know, that makes the heart grow fonder. But more important than that, I mean, why Mm -hmm. does that scene occur before this? Well, I think that scene is important because because at the reads, Jane, you know, she I, I hate to use this expression, but, you know, she has closure some sense of closure uh with with mrs reed by for find you know finding the strength in herself um and the character to forgive her aunt she also encounters you know she learns that her cousin john has committed suicide that's happened right um mm-hmm. at this point he's yeah. committed suicide and georgiana and eliza have kind of each of them has gone sort of a separate direction and extreme one, you know, one becoming like a, a dissipated lady and the other becoming, you know, overly pious and religious. And so, so all of these things have happened that just sort of consequently helps Jane to have a stronger sense of herself. So then she Mm. returns and has this new information. Now we know that Rochester's have been courting Blanche all along, but all of a sudden it's just kind of cemented when he says, I'm going to marry her. So it's finalized. So I think that she is discovering through new sets of circumstances who she is and what she's made of. Hmm. I love that you brought the passage up because I was thinking, I was wondering why Bronte put that particular passage here. Was it just that she needed to separate them? I don't I mean that helps. We t- talked about how when, what does Mrs. Reed tell her? You're a passionate what does she say up to her when she's a girl? You're passionate, Jane. Right. So, th- so then she has to go back to the woman who accused her, accused her of that when she was little, right before the scene where her passions kind of, she has to confront her own passions and, and reveal them. So 
it got me thinking about how with great writers, the, there's such a fine line between a book being truly great and maybe good, but not great. And oftentimes it has to do with making a decision of where to put something. Um, and you wonder if she thought, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, to have been able to interview Charlotte Bronte and say, so this scene here, did you put it here for this reason or why did you put that there? But it's, that's such a fascinating part of the process to me of, of reading books is to just get, let my imagination go about what could have happened if this passage got moved somewhere else. I also think that um, even just finding out about her uncle Hmm. opens up a space hmm. in her life that she didn't know existed before. You know, hmm. she just kind of had this idea about who she was and how isolated she was. Um, and just learning something that traumatic, um, even if she thinks it can't make a difference, it just, it alters your perception. It's, 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 um, it's unsettling, like in a good way, like, oh, the, the world and my situation are not what I thought it was. And, and that just, um, writes a new script or at least it offers the possibility hmm. of doing that. Hmm. I think that one other way that Jane is discovering herself in this passage is that she is discovering herself as an object of love, as a beloved hmm. person. Hmm. And we've brought that up several times as being kind of one motivating cornerstone of her life or, or yeah of her character is that she she feels alone she is alone in the world without family and not only without family but rejected by her family and despised mm. and cast off and so to find herself as the object of love as a beloved woman by a man that she not only loves but esteems and respects is mm. a life changing moment like that's a, that is a, that's a formative, everything is different from that point on. And she's, I think that's yet another way that she finds herself in this, in this moment. She's asserting her independence and also finding herself as a beloved person. That, that's a big, that's kind of a big day in your life. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Karen's dog has joined us. That's a very regal looking dog. She just gave us a nice big <laughs> yawn too. <laughs> That's why we call her Eva the Diva. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of dog is she? A Weimaraner. Okay, yeah. She is also asserting her independence right now. <laughs> so I, I forgot, you just summarized this, but I forgot where the breakdown is with 23 and 24. So at the end of 23, the lightning hits the tree. And then in 24... What's the one that was the part that happens in 24? They're engaged. Oh. It's their engagement. Right, right, right. Okay. And it's yeah. a very strange engagement. Oh, there's to one more thing I want to say. And it's that I think that also the point I just made about her being beloved for the first time is also related to the placement of chapter 21, right, in yeah. which she is again rejected by Aunt Reed. And although she's able to forgive her, she still leaves in a position of being an orphan. Like she doesn't have a family after she goes. She's reconciled as much as you can be to two kind of stunted, small-souled people uh, with with her cousins. And of course, John is dead in God and good riddance, right? And then we also have Aunt Reed who still refuses. She she confesses, but it is for her own sake because she it's because she's trying to be reconciled to God before she dies. She's not doing it for Jane. And she never likes Jane, even to the very end. And so Jane offers her forgiveness freely and fully, which is beautiful. But she still leaves 
as as an orphan. And so to come back then to Rochester's love after a time is yet another reason, I think, for the, for the poignant placement of that Aunt Reed mm-hmm. scene before the declaration of love. It seems that she also is much more it's almost like a, well, I guess I dodged a bullet having to leave those people type of feeling. Yes, you know, she exactly. feels, she, she, she looks at them and realizes mm-hmm. how small sold they are. And, but then, yeah, the, the absence of, you know, Karen mentioned the, the uncle who had wanted to mm-hmm. take care of her, but then Aunt Reed told him that she was dead of the, the fever at, at Lowood. Boy, that, that's dark and kind of gets glossed over. <laughs> yeah. But, she had there's there's this other character who was going to take care of her and she had to it, it puts into sharp relief or however you want to say it mm-hmm. what she has had to carve out for herself because of people like mrs reed she has had to she has gained the independence to say what she said to rochester because she was abandoned basically because she was kicked to the curb and that does something to you as a person to kind of have to carve your own identity. She has no, unlike almost everybody else in this time, she has no family or she has no, no home to carve her identity out of, to, to be the thing that, that she can identify with. There's no, no parents, no name, her, you know, no, no um, dowry, no, there's not even a goat, right? Goat, <laughs> um, True. <laughs> There is no goat. There's no goat. One thing about this book, very lacking in goats. <laughs> absolutely um, no goats. Of any okay. Kind. One question that I wanted to make sure we address about the, the um, 23, the, the, the engagement proposal negotiation scene. Um, Karen, he says, in that, he, I mentioned how he tells her, Jane, do you hear that nightingale singing in the wood? The nightingale then comes up a couple of times throughout the rest of the passage. They mention that they're, they've heard it. What is the significance, do you think, of the appearance of the nightingale, the nightingale song? I mean, I know that that is a bird that shows up a time or two in the literature of the era, but can you um, can you offer some thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. When you mentioned it earlier, I was like, oh, darn, what does a nightingale symbolize? Isn't it death? <laughs> Doesn't a nightingale symbolize death because it sings at night? Uh, I don't know. I is don't it know. Keats who wrote the nightingale oh, poem? Oh, to a nightingale. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't we'll know. We'll just do some quick Googling yeah, here. Somebody Google per- that. I think that's the case. I think that a nightingale symbolizes death. Uh, and there's, yeah, somebody, Heidi, Google that. So do lightning struck trees. Yeah, so. right, right, right. And, and babies. Uh, and, um, you know, if you dream of a child, all the, yeah, right? Yeah. The, all that kind of symbolism that we have, the f- foreboding tone over a very what ought to be a very happy time and readers should pay attention to that so cambridge university press has a dictionary of literary symbols and it says the nightingale has had the most spectacular career of all literary birds (laughs) (laughs) some good writing there from from cambridge it has appeared in many thousands of poems from homer to the 20th century and even in ancient times it acquired an almost formulaic meaning as the bird of spring of night and of morning and then on Wikipedia, it says it's an important symbol. Is that symbol morning for... M-O-R-N or M-O-U-R-N? M-O-U-R-N. Oh, okay. I-N-G. So spring, spring and of morning. night and of morning. <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> morning. So um, death seems to fit under that. <laughs> right. And, and then, spring? <laughs> yeah. And then Wikipedia says because of the violence associated with um, 
some mythology that it shows up in the nightingale song was long interpreted as a lament. The common nightingale has also been used as a symbol of a symbol of poets themselves. Mm-hmm. So presumably given that it's ancient origins, Charlotte Bronte was, you know, she, she chose a symbol that she knew that her readers probably would be like, huh. <laughs> it could symbolize anything apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> spring and death. <laughs> so yeah. spring morning. morning. Well, I guess yeah. so. It, so it's hap- so it, the scene is happening at nighttime. So then it would make sense that the nightingale would be mm-hmm. would be singing. So there's also just you know it's not like she's creating a symbol for the sake of a symbol that's not realistic. Right, right, right. It, 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 you know, there's a naturalism to it as well. But Heidi, you said lightning strikes, dreams of babies, nightingales. We should be looking out for all of these things in this moment that's supposed to be happy. And then you said that her the chapter twenty four is the engagement. So. Um, are you suggesting that maybe Jer- that Charlotte Bronte is foreshadowing future drama? Woes. <laughs> Wo- Woes. Woes yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the middle of the novel. So, or I guess we're a little over halfway. But their engagement, the dynamic between the two of them during their engagement is quite strange. It's not a blissful month of time. They are very much in love, but... She, you know, she's trying to keep him at bay. There's being judged. She's trying to keep him like physically at bay for obvious reasons. And um, he's not being very honoring towards that. And there's judge social judgment coming from Mrs. Fairfax. And there's just, and she starts to have just strange dreams and feelings that she can't explain. I remember reading this for the first time, not knowing anything about the novel. I had no idea what was coming. I remember just like being so weirded out by this chapter Mm. as a girl, like what's going on and wanting and, and what I remember vividly feeling is this sense of impatience. Like when are we going to get the wedding? When do we get to the wedding? When are we going to do the wedding? So that this will be over. And I think Bronte did a really good job of characterizing this engaged, their short engagement period. And with such a short engagement period, it takes some skill to be impatient for a wedding and she does it really well. I mean, just from a craft perspective, kind of gets this, you just want it to happen. You know, you're like, when is it going to happen? Um, hmm. So, yeah. Anything do you want to say about this season, Karen? Well, so I hard wanna, yeah, because we're I, like trying to avoid spoilers. I know. <laughs> I, I want to point. We'll get there. Okay. So this isn't, a, it's not a spoiler because it's in the reading. It might be a bit of a uh-huh. spoiler to draw attention to it but we should be paying attention to everything so it is still chapter 23 so it's page 426 right after she says i will marry you and you know they're embracing and he says well he says come to me come to me entirely now said he and added in his deepest tone speaking in my ear as his cheek was laid on mine make my happiness i will make yours like this is super romantic right and then mm-hmm. he's got his deep voice on yeah yeah and like i'll oh, make each other happy god pardon and me then... he subjoined ere long <laughs> and man meddle not with me i have her and will hold her like whoa all of a sudden he's you know sort of like saying something crying out weird? To god yeah <laughs> something weird and then it's like he's having this conversation that's not with Jane. No, that is the best of it. He said, and if I had loved him less, I should have thought his accent 
and look of exaltation savage, but sitting by him, roused from the nightmare parting, called to the paradise of union, I thought only of the bliss given me to drink in so abundant a flow. So, like, something's weird, but she's just like, okay, I'm just, but I'm thinking about my happiness. Well, he keeps asking her, are you happy? Are you happy? And she keeps saying... Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Again and again, he said, "Yeah, are you happy?" And then, and again, I answered, "Yes." Sorry. After, yeah, that's right. after which he murmured, "This is the weird part again. It will atone. It will atone." <laughs> mm-hmm. Have I not found her friendless and cold and comfortless? Will I not guard and cherish and solace her? Is there not love in my heart and constancy and my resolves? It will expiate at God's tribunal. I know my Maker sanctions what I do. For the world's judgment, I wash my hands thereof. For man's opinion, I defy it. Like he's not talking to her, and he's right. talking about atonement, and he's talking about God approving his what he's about to do. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> so that's a little dark, <laughs> and it's interesting that it comes right after the part where. So we were just talking about the bird, because the part where she says, "I am a free human being with an independent will," she starts by by saying, "I am no bird." And then it says another effort after another effort set me at liberty and I stood erect before him. And then he says, and your will shall decide your destiny. But then at the end of that, he says, be quiet for a minute, right? Like, just stop. You're overexcited and I will be still too. And then it says a waft of wind came sweeping down the laurel walk and trembled through the boughs of the chestnut. It wandered away, away to an infinite distance. It died. The nightingale song was then the only voice of the hour. In listening to it again, I wept. Mr. Rochester sat quietly, sat quiet. And then the conversation that you have. So that's kind of interesting that she says, I'm no bird. We're getting this nightingale bird metaphor going. And then they're talking to what he says, your will shall decide your destiny. And then when they're quiet, that wind comes through with the nightingale song is the only voice they hear. And then all of a sudden it gets a little dark. <laughs> well, first he says, come here. And then in that moment, things kind of switch there for a minute. So I, I don't know. I guess I'm just, that goes back to the bird thing is what I'm saying. It's just kind of interesting that she then uses mm-hmm. the bird to introduce the, it's almost like that on that waft of wind that comes sweeping down the laurel walk and tremble through the boughs of the chestnut, whatever enters into his soul there, whatever guilt, whatever darkness, whatever comes, it's like it comes down through the wind. And then at the end of the chapter, judgment. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that it speaks to, I mean, kind of the slippery character of the nightingale symbol, right? If it's, if it's spring and new life blooming and we're about to, you know, Mm. go skipping through meadows together, holding hands, that's, that, that would be what we would expect if for the nightingale singing over a proposal, right? But it also is could be a harbinger of uh, darkness Doom. and night and death. And what was the word Karen yeah. used? Woe? Or who you used the word woe? <laughs> I did use the word woe, yeah. but if yeah, <laughs> there is woe coming. And um, even the dynamic between the two of them and, and how she is kind of called upon to keep him at bay that I, I think that that is, I think that probably the first couple of times I read it, I thought it was kind of romantic, but now I think it's kind of creepy. Like the him just kind of like this 
like his pursuit of her. And there's a lot of emphasis given in this chapter on how much bigger he is than her. And it says, the threatened awful vengeance for my present conduct at some period fast coming. There's, there really is a, almost a, um, ominous or menacing kind of nature to the descriptions of Rochester's pursuit of her in this chapter. And she's happy. And so it's easy to kind of gloss it over and she's got it under control, so to speak, um, by kind of turning on him. And then he's, it says here that, um, uh, this is on page, the bottom of page 454. He had no such honeyed terms as love and darling on his lips. His best words at my service were provoking puppet, malicious elf, sprite, changeling, etc. For caresses too, I now got grimaces. For a pressure of the hand, a pinch on the arm. For a kiss on the cheek, a severe tweak of the ear. It was all right. At present, I decidedly preferred these fierce favors to anything more tender. And it's easy to take this, I think, at face value of like, he's he's eager to connect with her. And so she feels like she has to keep him at bay for a couple of reasons. One is that Mrs. Fairfax's presence and the other is the fact they're not married yet. And so it's easy to see this as like playful, but I think that there's even in her time, there's some foreshadowing here of like, there's something unequal, something not right, something off about this relationship at this point. And so I I think that for readers who are feeling like if they don't know the rest of the story and they're feeling like uh, this is a little creepy, I don't think you need to ignore that. <laughs> I think that that's there. Is that I was just going to say, go pay ahead, attention Karen. to the red flags always. Yes. In literature and in life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's this line on 430. That's the, we got another poster, right? <laughs> ignore the red flags right. at your own peril. Um he says, you're a beauty in my eyes and a beauty just after the desire of my heart. Delicate and aerial. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. And then she says, puny and insignificant, you mean. You're dreaming, sir, or you're sneering. For God's sake, don't be ironical. And then he says, I will make the world acknowledge you a beauty too. Which that's kind of mm-hmm. an interesting thing to say to somebody. I will attire my Jane in satin and lace and she shall have roses in her hair and I will cover the head I love best with a priceless veil. Which... That even that last line there yep. is fascinating. I will cover the head I like best with a priceless veil so that other people can't see it. It's kind of a there's a lot of different ways you could read that. Uh, and Karen, you have a note on 429 that he he she says he says is this my mustard seed? And you mentioned that that's the name of a fairy in a midsummer night's dream. And it's it's like he and I think Heidi you said he calls her a sprite or something. It's like he has ceased to see her as she is. There starts to become this starts to see to see her as some sort of you know unreal creature mm-hmm. um and he b- begins to go ahead no i was just gonna say i think we saw that before too he's always kind of called her by these yeah, that's playful true. names and and not seen her, her as you know which we can say that's just sort of the times you know to see her as a doll or plaything or elf or you know there were some other things and it, it and it was of the times it's also of our times and it's you know it's kind of problematic right well that's a red flag right it's a red flag (laughs) and even you know in in all of our defense of rochester that we've made over the past couple of weeks and saying see him within his own time we also need to take the book for what it is trying to do and one of the things it's trying to do is to claim jane as a fully 
independent, free human being. And so then to be treated by the love of her life as if she's an elf, a sprite, a changeling, as if she's an object to be pursued, as if she has to be constantly on alert to keep him at bay. Like there's, these are red flags that are put there by the author. I, and so she is, a, she does in this section assert her selfhood and then she is treated by Rochester as though she is a doll to be, you know, and she, she doesn't want that, right? She doesn't want all the silks and the satins and he won't listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has to, and, and then he's like pinching her and messy. Like there, so there, there is a toxic dynamic in this relationship that's happening right now. And, and we know that, that Bronte knows that it's toxic too, because she mm-hmm. is having Jane assert her selfhood and then having Jane's love, love of her life, not honor her selfhood. And so mm-hmm. we are, we, we ought to then say there's something not right about this. Well, and otherwise the book's, kind of over right like it, yeah. it not only does it this heightens the, mm-hmm. the tension and drama that the book has been working towards so long and you know, it's not like it's winding down now on 432 to your point he says now i shall he's talking about going to europe and all that he says i've i used to go through europe half mad with disgust hate and rage as my companions now i shall revisit it healed and cleansed with a very angel as my comforter that's a lot to put on on a, on a person and then she says i laughed at him as he said this i'm not an angel and I will not be one till I die. I will be myself, Mr. Rochester. You mm-hmm. must neither expect nor exact anything celestial of me, for you will not get it any more than I shall get it out of you, which I do not at all anticipate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm, I love the, I love that line. Um, and then she predicts what she thinks he's gonna, how he's gonna treat her. You know, for, you'll be like this for a while, and then you'll then you'll turn cool. She says, and that Jane's self knowledge and self-awareness even in the face of her affection and love and passion and all that i think is really um crucial for us as readers because it helps us it kind of like heightens the tension and keeps us on edge because she has a sense that even if she hasn't put words to it yet she seems to have a sense that something's kind of amiss (laughs) um good book it's so good. Well, and we've we've focused on Rochester's failures in a section or red flags or whatever we want to put it. And but Jane has her own here, her own blind spots here that we can see, especially in the final paragraph of chapter 24. I'll just read it. It's on page 455. She says, Yet after all, my task was not an easy one. Often I would rather have pleased than teased him. My future husband was becoming to me my whole world and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. He stood between me and every thought of religion as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not in those days see God for his creature of whom I had made an idol. So we do not just have uh, just Rochester, right? We also have Jane saying, this man was, I mean, to quote Juliet, the God of my idolatry, right? She, 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 she has lost herself in many ways in this as she admits it here. Um, so, and, and that, I mean, I think that that's pretty common at this stage of courtship or early, you know, falling in love. It's very easy to do this, but by the end of chapter 24, 
we do have lovers united who love each other, but we can tell there's more of the story to go in order for this not just to become a real love, but a good love. The first line of 25, I know we haven't read it yet, but the month of courtship had wasted, mm-hmm. which is a pretty interesting line, even if you take into account phrasings from that we don't use anymore. Karen, yeah. were you going to say something? Go ahead, Heidi. Well, I was going to point out the next sentence after that, David. There was no putting off the day that advanced the bridal day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not a very, you know, that's yeah. that's not like an I, eager it, bride. It's, yeah, like it's not down finally it's here. <laughs> right. Yes. Couldn't put There's it off anymore. Off. Yep. Go ahead, Karen. Yeah, no, I just wanted to comment on that last passage that Heidi read at the end of 24, that th- this is, you know, that is, it's one of the most important passages in the book, um, not only now in this place, but even, you know, later when we learn more. And this is one of the, the passages that I think really stands out as making this a very Christian novel, which, a lo- you know, a lot of people just don't, who haven't read it, don't realize how Christian Jane Eyre is. Um, and so this passage is, is really important. Heidi, do you have any final thoughts, anything that you, we haven't discussed yet? Any passages that you particularly love that you would like to, um, no, to touch I just, on before we go? My final thought is that I think we are doing a really good job of not giving any spoilers at this point. It's, even in talking about the, the proposal <laughs> scene and what's going on with Rochester, like there's, I would say if you don't know the story for our listeners... After you read the next section, go back and reread portions of this section because you will catch so, so, so many things. Um, And that's, again, to your point, David, that you made a few minutes ago. This is a great novel. This is a great novel. And great novels come alive through rereading. And so for all the people who are getting their first experience with Jane Eyre, like I envy you because you can never have that first experience again. But man, also go back and reread that proposal scene and, and, and this, I think, chapter 24 um, in light of what's coming. Karen, what about you? Yeah, I'm just, I, I echo that too, that, um, that jealousy of those reading it for the first time. I'm really encouraged. I've seen a couple of posts in the um, Facebook group and even someone on Twitter that I don't really even know who he is. Um, but I've just seen so many mentions of people reading this novel for the first time and really understanding just how great it is. And it's, it's so satisfying. I'm just very, very happy. That's what I want to say. Uh, Yeah. Like I said, I had read it. It had been a long time and I had new like respect for it. I I knew that it was good, but I'm really loving it this time. And I've been, uh, it's to the point where like when people come into the store and they're like, what should I read? I'm like, you've read Jane Eyre, right? <laughs> so Good so we, I've been pushing people towards the Jane Eyre. I mean, we push people towards the classics a lot anyway. And there has been a lot of people are looking for classics as it is. But if some people are coming in and they're saying, okay, I need to know. I know I want to read the classics. I've read this one, this one, this one. I've read a lot of Jane Austen. What should I read? Usually the first thing I'm saying is, is Jane Eyre because it's, it's really good. And also there's this new edition out that's, that's really good too. That I've only got one left of again, so I had to order more. Oh, awesome. So. Can I have a final, final thought? An extra final I, thought? I guess. Thank you. Thank you very much. Was it really a question? Yeah, <laughs> no, right, that's exactly. not a question. It's not even a question. I appreciate so, the suggestion that it was a question. <laughs> yeah, So, but you're actually going to like my final thought, which is a reminder that Saturday, which happens to be my birthday, by the way, is... 
independent bookstore day. So go to your local independent bookstore, Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're in the Charlotte area and your independent bookstore that's local will be Goldberry Books, (laughs) where you can pick up Jane Eyre. It's a huge Um, day for independent bookstores all over the country. And many of them are doing 10% off deals, um, giving away things if you buy certain amounts. Um, The IndieBound and the American Booksellers Association have things they're sending to bookstores to give away and all that. So if you have one in your area, definitely, you know, all of us bookstore owners, days like this are really crucial just for helping keep momentum and get new, meet new people and sustain <laughs> all those sorts of things. So I do appreciate you mentioning that. Also, if you're, go ahead. Go I was ahead. just going to say, well, happy birthday, Heidi, and happy independent bookstore day and put, yeah. put them together. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. And I will say, this is a little self-serving, but bookstores also, like if you, if you don't have one in your area or whatever, most of them are either doing it online are selling online or you can buy through bookshop.org. And a lot of what, like, um, there's the, the new audiobook company, uh, Libro FM is giving away audiobooks for people who spend $50 or more through an independent bookstore. So you can go there, you could upload your receipt from whatever bookstore you went to, and then they will give you audiobooks. Um, so there's a lot of cool, cool things going on. So if you, you could follow independent bookstore day on Instagram, go to IndieBound's website, whatever. Um, there's lots of great things out there. And almost every bookstore is doing at least 10% discounts this weekend. And I think bookshop.org has some things going on too. So um, it's a big day on many fronts then. It's Heidi's birthday. Oh, and it might be Shakespeare's birthday. That's my <laughs> hope. So they think he was born 23rd, 24th, or 25th of April. We don't know for sure. I like to think that I share a birthday with William Shakespeare. It's probably not that day, but I really hope it is. Well, the odds are better than it, that it's my birthday. So, Good. yeah, that's true. It's definitely not in December. So, <laughs> well, Karen, anything you want to pitch or plug or anything that's going on that you've been working on? I know you're you're working on a proposal, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a proposal for my next book, but I, but I have to do that and then wait, do the waiting game while I start my work on Tess of the Durbervilles and mm. the Scarlet Letter for next year. So got a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that you want to point people towards or, you know, follow you on Twitter or whatever? Yeah, you can follow me. Yeah. I, yeah. Just, if, if you must. <laughs> if you must. <laughs> I can't think of anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've probably had some art. I did. Only cool people at this point are allowed to follow you on Twitter anymore. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That. Let's, let's rules let's for following limit. Karen Swallow Pryor. Yeah. Be cool. Let's yeah. limit it to that. I did have an article out um, this week at Christianity Today about reading being up during the pandemic. And um, mm. yeah. So you might want to check that out at Christianity Today. Awesome. Heidi, do you want to pitch anything? You guys are no. heading into act. You just, we just posted act four of Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah. Um, plays the thing, yeah. So. Well, and tomorrow night on PBS, there is the uh, new version of Romeo and Juliet. And uh, so we're, we're going to record a response to that performance probably next week. So nice. don't forget to watch that if you yeah. can. Yeah. So tomorrow um, night being Friday the 23rd. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because this will go. So this will. It'll be tonight when, by the time the episode goes up. So um, true. I did not think of that. Want to clarify? April twenty third. Yeah. yeah. Thank you yeah. for clarifying. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Karen, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you for for doing this book. And uh, Heidi, 
as always, thanks. Aye, aye, Captain. And thanks to Eva for Eva the Diva for sharing Karen. It looked like it was getting to be a bit of a struggle there. It, well, it's it's D I N N E R uh, time for them. So yes. yeah. Yeah, I'm getting I'm sense. getting there. I'm getting the stink eye over. Yeah. <laughs> well, you better go take care of that. We should end so you can go take care of the dogs. Great. Thanks, so, guys. With that, for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.